know, I've uh, noticed that there seems to be somewhat low-level anxiety that many people live with in regards to their spiritual lives. It's a feeling like we're lacking something, like something vital is missing. That unsettling feeling that many people have that, have I done enough? How can I know that I'm not missing some vital piece of information or something important that can give me certainty. When we feel that dissatisfaction, it's not simply uh, affecting our spiritual lives. It will affect every detail of our lives. I occasionally suffer from back pain, and when my back goes out, I mean, there is like nothing that I can do. It, It just affects every part of it. And that is what happens when we're spiritually unsatisfied. There is a a sense in which everything gets dark. This question is not just for those who are searching, but it affects those who are in the church as well. We find that our experience sometimes doesn't match up with what we expected the, the Christian life to be. It feels like there's a a disconnect. Maybe we're frustrated at the the lack of progress that we see in our lives. We've been a Christian for years, and yet it seems like we struggle with the the very same things we did in year one of our Christian life. Is there something that we're missing? Is there a spiritual experience that's out there that we could tap into that would make it feel right? Right? Is there something more that we need to learn? Well, as we begin a series in the book of Colossians, we have to understand that that is exactly where this young church is. They've heard the message of the gospel from this man, Epaphras. And as they heard it, they began to react to it. They they become excited by it, and they have turned from their old lives and and started this new life in line with the gospel and they have grown into a community of faith, into into a church. But now they're starting to have questions. Did I get the full message? Is there something that maybe Epaphras left out? Or perhaps he was off base. Maybe he gave the wrong message. Have you ever felt like that? Like maybe there's just some missing piece that you don't have. I I sometimes get that feeling when I'm putting together Ikea furniture. Have have you ever had that? Where you're like halfway through and then you look at the instructions and you're like, maybe this isn't the right instructions for what I'm trying to build. And, you know, there's no words in there that help you. There's just, you know, just pictures. Well, Colossians are struggling. Is there something I'm missing? Many have theorized that perhaps there are people who have come into this community and started to put pressure on them to say, hey, you know, have you heard about this secret knowledge? Or, hey, why aren't you doing these, uh, these religious rituals? And scholars have struggled to figure out who might be pressuring them to see what they're missing. There's even a good argument to say that 
that there were no external pressures. Perhaps it was just an internal pressure from the Colossians themselves as they felt uh, that they were out of place given all the other religious experiences around them. Whether it's that or whether it's external, they're struggling. And as we can resonate with their struggle, we need to turn to what they turn to. This word, not just a word from Paul, but the word of God. We know that they treated it like the word of God because at the end of this letter, they were encouraged to spread this around to the other churches. They held on to this throughout the ages, even though they had never met Paul, and treated it like the very word of God. And so we understand it to be his powerful word to us. So let's come to God now, expecting it to work. Let's, let's begin, though, in prayer. Father, we do pray that you will use this word now in our lives in its powerful effect. Transform us, Lord, and renew us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul has heard of the struggles of this church, and he writes them this letter of the Colossians with the purpose to give them certainty, to provide for them a level of assurance. And his path to doing that is interesting, for he doesn't, he doesn't give them a clue to some secret knowledge that's out there that only apostles know of. He doesn't give them a big to-do list so that they can rigorously follow some sort of ascetic practice and afterwards feel like, oh, I finally made it. What he does is hold a mirror up to them. And in a sense, show them what they already possess. He does this in a form of a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And in fact, chapter 1 is largely, well, it's not actually that prayer. It's a report of that prayer. Paul is telling them what he has been thanking God for. And so he lists here the very thing that is important for them to know. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, He has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That is what Paul points to to say, you have what it takes. You have what makes a Christian. You have faith, hope, and love. And I hear that and think, man, that sounds kind of weak. <laughs> it sounds a little wishy-washy. That, that sort of sounds like something I would hang in my kitchen. Faith, hope, and love. You know, eat, love, pray, something like that, you know. Sorry if that's in your kitchen, but, you know, just what does that mean? Like, can you get a little bit more concrete for me, Paul? Faith, hope, and love, what, what are you talking about? Well, these are not vague concepts. And Paul has an intentionality behind each of them. And each of them are supposed to provide a level of certainty for what it means to be a Christian. And we might, we might have guessed that he would have said, faith needs to be there. For me to be a Christian, I've got to have faith in Christ. Or perhaps you'd say, well, certainly love needs to be there. Christians should be known by their love. 
But the remarkable thing about this passage is Paul puts almost all of the weight of what he's trying to convince them that they, they have that is for them is in the third thing. Hope. They should be certain that they are good Christians because they have hope. Are we back to vagueness? Are we back to wishy-washy? What does he mean by hope? Well, the first thing I want us to notice about this hope that he is stressing is that he says it's a hope laid up in heaven, which means it's a hope that's, that's stored there. Heaven here is not the thing they are hoping in. It's where their hope is stored. It's like a vault or a safe. You know, when we look at the Bible, heaven is uh, contrasted with earth. They are like two distinct realms. Many times we think about heaven and we think, of that, that's the place you go to when you die. But according to the Bible, it's much more than that. It is a realm. It is where God now dwells. It is where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, if we were to think about the, the real picture of heaven from Scripture, it almost acts like God's control room. It's the place where he sovereignly rules over everything that goes on in the created reality. But there is a clear distinction between heaven and earth. And from our perspective, it's a bit frustrating. For we cannot see heaven. There are no scientific tools that we possess in all of creation that can pierce into heaven and discern its existence or what's in there. There can appear like there is a wall between heaven and earth. And is that very perception on our end that there is a, a, a distinct separation that has caused many people to proclaim that agnosticism is the only logical conclusion? Agnosticism, the, the sense that we can't know. There is an inability to know. That certainty should be off the table. This is really important, especially when we think about what Paul is saying here about hope. Because I tell you, what he is not saying is that hope is some bit of wishful thinking. Hope is not like saying, well, I don't really know what's on the other side of life. I don't really know anything beyond creation. But, you know, I kind of hope. Right? Is that what Christians are? Those who, who are just sort of optimistic? That's not biblical hope. Biblical, biblical hope is not like a balloon that is, is untethered from any reality that just sort of floats indistinct. Biblical hope is more like an anchor. Hope is like an anchor. Think about that picture. It's, it's a remarkable thing that the state of Rhode Island, their state flag is this huge anchor. And underneath that anchor is the word hope. These two things go together. 
It's how we use the term hope, and it's how Paul is using it. It doesn't mean the activity of hoping. If I was to say to you, hey, come and and, uh, I'll give you a ride, and I hope my brakes work. You getting in the car? (laughs) No. Uh, No, no thanks. I think I can Uber it. Um, No, for him to say, you can hope in a safe travel because my brakes are good. They are the hope that you can rely on. A strong anchor is my hope in the midst of rough waves. This hope, Paul is saying, is something we can put our full confidence in and it cannot, it cannot be diminished in any sense with what's going on in this world. There is nothing that can get to it. It is in the vault. It is sealed. It is secure. Okay, well, what is it? What is there in heaven on the other side of this perceived wall? These first eight verses don't define it for us, but it doesn't take long for Paul to spell it out. Verse 23, he mentions, it is the hope of the gospel. And he clarifies what that is in verse 27, the hope of glory, which is Christ in you. The hope that's stored in heaven is Christ. It's Christ. Christ is supreme. That is the message of Colossians as a whole. Christ is worthy of all of our confidence. Christ is the sure anchor. Christ is the safe, effective breaks. Christ is the one that we can rest all of our hope on. But Paul's not satisfied just to say he's something that you can ground your hope in. He wants to say it's not just necessary, it's sufficient. It's the only thing that we can ground our hope in. The more you add other things to it, the more you actually weaken your hope. It's not just, I have Christ plus all the things I do in this life to guarantee it. That would be like adding to a steel chain links that are made out of paper. It doesn't strengthen it. It doesn't even do nothing to it. It actually destroys the strength of everything that we could put hope in. Paul's saying there is nothing this side of heaven that will ever provide security our grounding of our hope is only in Christ. You know, this may sound rather obvious, but I found that the distinguishing mark of mature Christians again and again is that they talk a lot about Christ. I know that sounds obvious, right? But think about it. They talk a lot about Christ and less about themselves. You know, people who feel like they're constantly missing something, people who feel like they're constantly insecure, that they constantly have doubts, well, what I find is that they tend to talk a lot about what they're doing and not doing. Their moral efforts or their moral failings. Jesus is not the one who has satisfied their hope. Jesus is there, maybe, perhaps, if ever mentioned, standing as one who judges. 
as they feel like they're letting him down. The Colossians are there. They're feeling pressure. We get a little glimpse of this in chapter 2 when Paul warns them. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or festival or Sabbath. Let no one tell you that you're missing out because you're not experiencing this or that. He says those are but a shadow, the substance. No matter how good they are, they are but a shadow. The substance, the thing itself that you need to put your hope in is Christ. Do you know that kind of pressure? Do you feel like you're not meeting the expectations of others? Do you feel the weight of the expectations that they're crushing you? Paul's urging them not to look at themselves, not to even look at what others are pushing on them, but to rest the full weight of their hope on Christ and what he has done. That's not laziness. That's not let go and let God. And that's not apathy. Well, forget what everybody else thinks. I'm just going to go my own way. No, it's trying to wrestle them away from putting confidence in the opinions of others, to conform to the image of, of what others expect out of them. Your hope is not going to be found in you. Your hope is only on what's on the other side. Your hope is in heaven. It's interesting here, as Paul talks about hope, and for him, it's not just future-oriented. Almost every time we we use the term hope, it's all future-oriented, and there's a sense in which every time we use hope, it's always talking about something that we expect, some positive that we expect in the future. But Paul is saying more than that. He's saying more than that, you know, life is just drudgery, and, you know, cheer up, uh, it'll be okay, because once you die, then you'll get this reward. I mean, I think a lot of Christians live like that. You know, we'll just, we'll just soldier through, and then the good stuff will be later. That is not what Paul says here. Paul is claiming that they're right now is an access point through the wall. There is a place where heaven meets earth. Place is the operative word. Location. There is a location where Christ meets his people. How can we tell that? Well, look at, look at how Paul addresses the Colossians. It's a strange address if you actually think about it. Imagine if you were to send a letter in the mail. Does anybody send letters anymore? In snail mail, I'm talking about. And you write on that that envelope two addresses. Well, what's going to happen to that letter? Where's it going to go? I mean, it's probably going to get sent back to you as you're crazy. Pick Pick one, please. Paul gives them two locations as he addresses this. Verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in, in Christ at Colossae. You know, but the preposition is the same for both. To the Christians 
at Colossae, at Christ. They're in two places at the same time. And what he's saying in that, we've got to let the full weight of that hit us. That in Colossae, men and women are living there and they are having direct contact with heaven itself. They are communing. They're having an experience of the real presence of Christ who is in heaven. He's going to explicitly say that later. In chapter 3, he will say, you're not just in Colossae. You have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. In other places, he will say, Christ is your life now. Or that Christ is in you. And that interchange is saying that now there really is an access point. There really is a presence right now, a location. You can be in Colossae and in heaven at the same time. Which is all the more remarkable if you know anything about ancient Colossae. Because you probably don't know anything about ancient Colossae. It was not worthy to know. It's hardly ever studied or excavated. Colossae was a city that is somewhere in, in modern-day Turkey, but is completely unnoteworthy. It's like saying, hey, I know exactly the place where you can, can locate heaven. Just go to Toledo, Ohio, and you'll find it. Sorry for those of you from Toledo. It's just this idea that wherever it is, it could, it could be in, in a most nondescript place, and there it is, you'll find Christ, because it's not resting upon a location in particular. It's not that the Colossians figured out some secret door. What is it? What provided it this access? What allowed them, what allows us now to say we are in New Haven and in Christ at the same time? Paul says it here in verses 5 through 7. It is the Word. The Word as it is unleashed throughout the globe. The Word of God miraculously going throughout, as Paul would say, the entire creation, making new temples everywhere it goes. This is quite a remarkable picture of God's Word. It goes out like a personified Force moving, and everywhere it goes, it's saying, Paul's saying that it is bearing fruit. Now, Paul is making an allusion with that reference to Genesis 1. And though it might seem from our context that that's like a pretty weak link, if we read the rest of Colossians 1, Genesis, the creation story, is all throughout this chapter. What's going on there? Think about Genesis 1. Not just what God does in creating things, but think about what we read as as the first humans, Adam and Eve, are, are given this command by God. They're told to be fruitful and to multiply. That's more than just saying, God saying, hey, go and make a lot of babies and fill the earth. 
He's giving them a vocation, a job, and everywhere they go, as they're in line with God, they are spreading his kingdom. So God's intention always was, as they were faithful, the entirety of the world would be a temple. Heaven and earth always were meant to be united. That's the fruitfulness that should have happened at creation. But of course, Adam and Eve turned away. In their sin, they rejected God. And that sin brought death. And it poured out into all creation. Death and decay now reigns. Humanity no longer connects with heaven and God. Instead, we keep our eyes downward. And we turn away from our only hope. Well, God wasn't going to leave this go. God then sends Christ into this place of death. At to the, back into the core of the issue to deal with sin. To die. And then to be raised again to new life. So that wherever Christ is, there is now life. His resurrection means a start of new creation. And all those who align with him now have the same hope that they will have new life. That's the image that is just really tightly articulated here by Paul. The word of God going out, and as it's going, it's doing exactly what Adam and Eve should have done. It is bearing fruit which means it is producing a new humanity. And everywhere the word of God goes now, there is new creation. Humanity, not the same humanity as it was before, but those who give their lives over to Christ, experiencing transformation, new life. That is is the picture we see here. For it isn't just transforming the globe, It's transforming us. It's making us new. Paul says in verse 6, he he says, it's not just going into the world, it's now at work among you. Now we can finally make sense of what he's saying here about faith, hope, and love. The order is essential. Paul's not saying, as we might expect, about the order of these three, that if we have enough faith, then it will allow us to have hope. And he's not saying, well, you know, if we love enough people, if we show enough love, then we can be sure that this hope is for us. Ah, look at his order. The logic, logic of it works the other way around. Listen to verse 4 and 5. Their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see, hope is not the reward of a life of faith or a life of love. Hope is the source. The NIV puts it this way, faith and love that spring from the hope stored for you in heaven. See, what he's saying here is that this hope, which is Christ, When you're in Christ, when you're in that location, God is starting to transform you. 
you are now becoming a new person. And that new person has these amazing qualities. These new per- the new person does something that a natural person, a person apart from Christ, cannot do. And those things that, that a person apart from Christ cannot do is faith and love. You think about faith. What is faith? It's not a blind leap hoping that something is going to work out. Faith is a response to God's word. And when Paul talks about their response, that is exactly what he says here. The word of truth came to you. What did they do? They heard it and they understood. There's a sense in which they, they not just reacted, but they probed it and understood it and then responded with, yes. Your God, the God of the universe, has sent you a message. And it is the message that there is new life now in Christ. There's a relationship that you can have now with God. Faith is the response of saying yes to that message. Faith is not a natural thing. It's a response to God's word. This really needs to, sh- to shape how we understand agnosticism. Agnosticism isn't the logical conclusion that says there is no way to understand what is locked on the other side of this wall of life and creation. No, agnosticism, when we get right down to it, is the rejection of God's word. It's saying, I cannot accept that to be what's on the other side. I'm building my own wall between us and God. Faith is not natural. It's produced from this hope. The love is not natural. It's produced by this hope. And it's not natural what Paul is doing here. Paul has never met this church in Colossae. He's never visited them. They have not, as he'll say in chapter 2, seen each other face to face. And yet Paul is writing them this letter talking about how much he loves them and prays for them. He's struggling for them. He gets into the mess of their lives. Why is he doing that? Even more so, he's doing all this while he's sitting in prison, being persecuted for the very thing he's doing, writing this letter. He does it because of the love that has compelled him. It's not natural. It's not natural to be committed to a relationship with the people sitting in the pew next to you. I mean, think about that. If you're you're sitting next to somebody who is not a relative of yours, you're now charged to love them in a way that That is supernatural because you have no natural affinity to them other than Christ. Oh, sure, you might share some interests. You might share some background, but you might not. And they might be a complete stranger to you. And yet because you share this hope, you can love them and know them as brother and sister. This only comes... As Christ, the hope bears fruit in your life. 
you start to see how this message that Paul is, is introducing, even at the beginning here, how that begins to affect the Colossians, how it addresses their anxiety. You begin to see how it addresses our uncertainty. Think about what it's saying to us. First, think about the fact that Paul is writing this letter. What does that tell us? It tells us that Christians, even from the earliest times, struggled. They had doubts, that had that feeling inside them that they were incomplete. If you have that feeling, you are not alone. It's a common experience to feel like Christianity just doesn't fit or match your expectations. But, but look at Paul's response. He's not angry at them. He's not calling them to task to say, shame on you for not feeling it. No, he goes out of his way to say, God wants you to have confidence. Do you know that? Like that, that is what God wants for you? He wants you to have assurance. He doesn't want this to be mysterious or hard. He doesn't want this to be a guessing game. He wants you to put your weight, your hope, in Christ alone. And so he gives you his word. He gives you a community. He gives you multiple voices speaking into your heart to say, trust it. In fact, if you have that feeling of unsatisfaction, you know, I would say from Scripture, that is a sign that you are on the right track. Because the life that God is pouring now into you is starting to emerge. Which also means that your old life is starting to die. And that is painful. He's saying you are now in two locations. You're in North... in. New Haven, and you're in heaven. And it's painful until those two become one. And so there's a sense in which you are feeling exactly the right feeling if you are feeling like this is uncomfortable. But secondly, the source of our anxiety might be coming from actually us wanting something different than God is offering. You know, many of us lack assurance. We are afflicted with doubts because of our sin. We look at our sin and we say, well, how can I possibly be accepted by God? Do you ever wish that you were just done with sin? Do you ever just, just think, God, you know, please, just... He snapped my fingers, and then sin would be completely gone from my life. I wouldn't feel guilt. I wouldn't feel burdened. I wouldn't feel frustrated. Do you ever feel that? Well, there's a godly way of seeking that. But there's another way of seeking that that actually just wants to ground our acceptance and our hope in our own performance. And could it be that that longing is just for us to control our feeling of comfort and security, that we want our hope in our own hands? Because when there is no sin, 
well, then I can do what I want. There's nobody that holds anything over me. I could look at my life and say, it's been perfect. I've run the course. There's no problems. I owe nothing to anybody. But to achieve perfection without Christ is no hope at all. And it is utter death. Perfection without Christ is the absence of life. The gospel comes in not as some 12-step program to improve your life and help you to run a perfect course. The gospel comes in to reconcile you with God. Our holiness is completely grounded in Christ's holiness. It's completely dependent on him so that when we're in him, we have hope. When you're in him, you have the exact label that that Paul labeled the Colossians with, you are a saint. You're holy. Because you're in him who is holy. But if you're outside of him, if you remove yourself from him, you will feel like there is a wall that has been sealed up. That there is no access to life. Yes, we can be found outside of him. We can be located apart from him. And when we do, it doesn't matter how perfectly you run the course. That independence alone leaves you in despair constantly. But you're here. You are here in the community of faith. You are here in the church. You're not independent. You're not just here in New Haven. You are in Christ. And when you are in Christ, Paul's message to you is that you have all that you need. Will you put your confidence in that? Will that be the anchor of your hope? Let's pray.